This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, it's the story of the Snow Queen, the fairy tale that very loosely inspired Disney's Frozen. You'll see how children's entertainment has changed over 170 years because this children's fairy tale contains demons, drowning, murder, three kidnappings, and a delightful little sociopath who just wants a friend. Then, on the Creature of the Week, I don't even need to tell you that if you see a moss-covered log with wings or a guy with a blue face and green hair, maybe avoid them if they're beckoning you into the river. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 21, Fearful Symmetry. This is a podcast where I tell stories that have shaped cultures throughout history. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you probably haven't heard, but really should. This week, it's one of those popular stories with a surprising origin. I'm celebrating the fact that everything is frozen here in the Northern Hemisphere, or at least in upstate New York, by telling the story that inspired Disney's Frozen. The story is called The Snow Queen, and it's by our old friend and much maligned Danish storyteller Hans Christian Andersen. Moderately long-time listeners of the podcast will remember that he was the writer of the original Little Mermaid, a fairy tale that I was perhaps a little bit too hard on. The funny thing about the stories of Hans Christian Andersen is that they really aren't technically folk tales. He made up the Little Mermaid and the story today. That they are absolutely fairy tales due to their inclusion of fantastical supernatural elements. I'll jump right into the story. You really don't need any background other than the fact that it takes place in the 1800s in a Scandinavian country. And that's about it. One day there was a little hobgoblin. Some interpretations say he was the devil, and others that he was just a little imp. He's called a troll in places, and sitting at his school one day, because he absolutely ran a little devil school, he had an idea. You can't make a person sin or control their thoughts, but you could change the way they saw themselves and the world around them. You could reveal to them the ugly, fallen world they lived in, and then they would see things as they are. This would make people angry, despairing, and it would sow dissension among them. He made a looking glass, a mirror. Everything good in it would shrink to almost nothing, while everything bad would be magnified. The demon flew around, showing it to people secretly. People would see their heads magnified in it. They would see themselves as grotesque things, and freckles would be magnified and warped so that they would change from just one spot to cover noses and part of the mouth. I'm not really understanding all the freckle hate here, but okay. And, of course, when you saw a beautiful landscape in it, they appeared to be boiled spinach. People were quarreling and generally being terrible to each other when the little imp decided to take the mirror up to heaven to see the angels, to try to sow dissension among them, too. It was raining that day as the imp and his team of lesser demons flew upwards over the mountains on their way to heaven. The rain and the winds beat against them, and what they thought would just be a drizzle turned into a full-blown storm and one by one each lost their hold on the wet, slippery mirror. They were struggling to stay in the air, let alone hold a mirror that was dragging them away. They dropped down below the cloud, and each thought the other had it. But they looked at each other in panic, and then looked down. They saw the massive looking glass tumbling toward the earth. They flew after it as fast as they could, but it shattered on the rocks, and then shattered again, and again as it fell. The imp was forlorn, and went home. Fortunately for the demon, and unfortunate for nearly every other living thing, the mirror was in pieces, but not destroyed. It had shattered in all directions from the rock. There were pieces as large as a windowpane, to as small as a grain of sand. 
Years passed, and nothing came of it. Then the mirror began to seep more insidiously back into society, as people began to find it. The small, dust-sized pieces were carried on the wind, and would lodge in people's eyes, which, ouch. But as soon as it did, it would forever change the way they saw the world. It would be freckles and boiled spinach as far as the eye could see. People began to use it for their windows, personal mirrors, and eyeglasses, and just hate themselves and everyone around them because every beauty was ugliness and every pious thought sinister. The mirror would also find itself into the hearts of people. I guess people would inhale them, and they would become lodged in the heart, turning it as cold as ice and changing the person, too. As a really quick aside, I get the dust lodging in the eyes, but I'm not very sure how the looking glass, a mirror, can go to functioning as windows and eyeglasses. Mirrors at this time were sometimes just glass coated with a reflective substance, so maybe that could have deteriorated over time, leaving just the cursed glass. Like the ancillary details of the Little Mermaid, Anderson doesn't really bother to explain, but I'm just going to let this one go and move on. These pieces stayed on the wind, seemingly inexhaustible, and affected eyes and hearts of people all around the world. In the big city, there were two children, a boy and a girl. The boy, named Kay, lived across the alley from a girl, Gerda. They were best friends, and each family, though astoundingly poor, had enough room outside their window for a small garden in the form of potted plants. Gerda and Kay would sit at their respective windows and talk all day. In the summer, the two families would strap long pots full of roses across the narrow pipe that stretched between the buildings. Gerda and Kay could run across them like a balance beam and play with each other and visit the other's family. One day, they were sitting on Gerda's side, reading a picture book when the wind kicked up dust through the town. Gerda shielded her eyes, but the dust got in Kay's eye, and he breathes them in as well. He rubs his eyes and coughs, but he just can't get the dust out until, finally, the glass from the mirror, and yes, it was that mirror from the beginning, became lodged in his eye, and the tiny shards that he had breathed in became lodged in his heart, which was already turning to ice. Gerda tried to take a look, but he pushed her away, saying that he was fine now. He suddenly saw all of her faults. He said he didn't want to sit here and keep reading a stupid little baby book, and he began walking across the flower pots. Ugh, these roses. All he could see were the blemishes. He yanked a couple out, then, wow, why was his family keeping this god-awful box outside the window? Looking at the flower pots. I mean, they were poor, but they didn't need to advertise it. Gerda yelled at her friend and cried. Ugh, won't you stop crying, you little baby? You know how ugly you look when you cry? he said, before going through the open window to be alone in his apartment. Kay was really different after that day. Where he used to sit quietly and listen to his grandmother tell old stories, he now contradicted her much too often and made smart-alecky remarks. I guess someone should give him a podcast. He would also imitate people and hurt their feelings and be really cruel to Gerda, who still spent time with him because he had been her best friend and maybe he would snap out of it sometime. In addition to being an incorrigible jerk, he also had a fascination with the beauty of snowflakes and said that they were prettier than flowers. And there's a really interesting interpretation of why exactly this is bad, and I'll go over that at the end. Anyway, all the cool boys in the capital used to tie their sleds to people's carriages and race through town. So, of course, Kay had to do just that. He got his winter clothes on and went down to the square. Down there, Kay, being the super cool guy he now was, wanted to show off. There was an all-white carriage moving very quickly around the square. He watched it pass, 
nodded to his newfound friends, sat on his sled, and hooked the carriage with the rope when it came around. And it was going so fast it nearly tore his arms off. After being dragged along, he struggled to the top of his sleigh. This was awesome, he thought as he looked at the city flying by him. He was smiling, until he realized they weren't circling the city like he thought. They were leaving it. He looked up and saw the carriage driver look back at him calmly, face hidden by fur. Instead of being mad that a kid had latched himself to the sleigh, the driver just looked ahead and spurred the horses on even faster. The city was going by too fast at this point, and it would have been dangerous to jump off. He resolved to jump into a snowbank after he left the city. But after he thought that, the snow picked up, and he noticed the driver of the sleigh was dangerously close to the river. Some witnesses just outside the city say that they saw the boy either dive off his sleigh or unhook it, and go right into the freezing river. The snow had kicked up so badly that it took the people who reportedly saw this nearly 15 minutes to even find the river, and by that time, they guessed that the boy had already long since drowned, or died of hypothermia and been carried away. They never saw the boy named Kay again. Months later, long after the news had finally trickled down to Kay's family, Gerda sat, still mourning. She told herself that she should really just forget the boy. He had died, and was he ever even her friend? He had been so mean towards the end. Still, Gerda couldn't shake the feeling that he wasn't dead. No body had been recovered from the river after the thaw. And Gerda had an idea. Maybe it was still there. She got her best shoes, little red ones, and she was going to give them to the river to get Kay back. The logic is not 100% sound, but remember that she's a grief wracked child who is just trying to think of anything to get her friend back. Which, putting it all together like that, it sounds pretty sad. She went to the edge of the river and threw the shoes in, and then yelled at the river, tears dropping in the water, to give her friend back. And the shoes floated back to the shore almost immediately. The girl stood there. Hmm. It didn't occur to her to stop, so she found a boat that was tied to the dock. Maybe she wasn't out far enough. She got into the boat, went out, and dropped the shoes. They just floated there, and the river wouldn't take them, but Gerda found herself in a larger predicament. She was drifting. She had left the oars in the dock. She moved farther and farther away from the riverbank and out into the fast-moving river. Her shoes floated on behind her, but she was moving too fast for them to catch up. She sat down in her stockings and resigned herself to go wherever she was taken. There was some consolation. Maybe she was being taken closer to Kay. She sat on the boat, watching the countryside go by for hours and hours until the sun began to go down. She saw an odd little house on the riverbank with wooden soldiers outside. Gerda playfully saluted the wooden soldiers, but just beyond the house was a woman in the garden, and she saw Gerda. Little girl, she said, running out. How do you come so far by yourself? And she hobbled over and stretched out to stop the boat with her crutch. Gerda clambered ashore, and she and the old lady pulled the boat out of the water. The old woman was hunched and wrinkled and told her to come inside the quaint little house tell her all about her quest. She must be hungry, right? Gerda stuffed cherries in her mouth as the old woman combed her hair and listened to her stories between bites. Kay, hmm, the old woman said. Nope, I haven't seen him, but he'll likely be by soon. You should just stay here for a while. The old lady, 
though which wasn't the type to try to eat the girl or pin her down with disembodied hands and murder her like other fairy tale witches. She was only interested in some light kidnapping. The old witch was lonely and wanted Gerda to stay just for company. So she plucked the memories of Kay from Gerda's head while she brushed her hair. And Gerda, not remembering Kay or home or anything, decided to stay with the old woman. It was getting late, after all. She enjoyed more treats, and then the next day she went through the witch's garden, which, after growing up where the only flowers she ever saw were the measly little roses outside of her window, she was blown away by the flower garden. Hours passed while she looked at them, and soon it was night. She decided to stay another night, then another, then another. Soon, she stopped keeping track. She never wanted to go back to the city. She never had any friends there, and it was nice out here in the country, with this magnificent, magical flower garden. Only, there was something missing. She couldn't quite figure out what was missing, but something had been hidden, and it stuck in Gerda's mind and grew like a disease. As it turns out, the witch had hidden the roses. She forced them back into the ground, because if Gerda had seen them, she would remember the painful last days with Kay, and Kay, and why she had left in the first place. The girl, who was living in poverty, slept on silk pillows here with the witch. She was better off, the old woman told herself. Unfortunately, the witch had a hat with all the flowers of the earth painted on it. Since roses are a flower of the earth, Gerda's eyes happened to alight on them one day, and everything snapped into place. Roses... There were no roses in the garden. That small patch of dirt. It made sense now. Gerda stood in front of it and wept as she remembered Kay's disappearance. He was dead, and she was a fool for traveling so far for nothing. Then, something happened. The roses in the ground felt her tears and slowly emerged. She smiled, remembering the good times above the alley, and hugged the roses. She asked them, and I don't know if she expected a response, if they had seen Kay under the ground. Then, something stranger happened. Well, strange for our world, but probably pretty normal in a fairy tale world. The roses responded. Kay? The roses said. No, we haven't seen him in the ground at all. And with this, Gerda's heart leaped. Maybe Kay wasn't among the dead. Maybe he had somehow survived the winter. She asked the roses where he was. Oh, yeah, no, we don't know where he is. Just that he's not in the ground. Maybe some of the other flowers know. And so she went and talked to the other flowers, and this is me, Jason, and I'm going to spare you several conversations about the dreams of flowers that are completely irrelevant to the story. I'm not giving this story the same treatment that I did for The Little Mermaid, so I'm just going to let this go, but wow did Hans Christian Andersen need an editor. Basically, Gerda would ask where Kay was, and she would get a long, meandering response. She would ask how that related to Kay, and the flowers would say, Kay? I don't know anyone named Kay. When Gerda realized that the other flowers knew less and were way less focused than the roses, she decided to leave. The old woman was in the house, and so she snuck to the gate. Looking back, the house was quiet, and Gerda reached over and unhooked the rusty latch from the other side, and the gate opened, and she escaped. No shoving the witch into an oven, or dropping her into a river of fire, or threatening her with a blessed doll. Gerda just ran off. She looked back a few times as she ran along the river. She ran for nearly an hour, and somewhere in there she realized that she still didn't have shoes, so she was running across the wilds in her thin stockings. Well, can't go back for him now. When she thought she was far enough away, she stopped and rested. She caught her breath and noticed a few things. One, her feet hurt. A lot. 
They were cut, bruised, and bloody from running over rocks and sticks, essentially barefoot. And two, it wasn't spring anymore. It was well into fall. Very nearly winter, actually. There were a few inches of snow on the ground here and there. The witch had enchanted the garden and, let's say, time to make it look like only a handful of days had passed in the sunshine. Gerda got up and walked for several more hours, though it was slow going on account of her feet and the cold. And finally, at nightfall, she collapsed into tears on a stone. She was miles and miles away from home. She didn't know where she was. She didn't have food, shelter, adequate clothing, or shoes. And night was falling. This would be a terrible situation for any of the heroes I've talked about so far in the podcast, but especially so for a child lost in the wilderness. Exhausted and weeping on a stone, she hears a cawing next to her and looks to see a crow cocking its head at her. She lowered her head and heard, Good day. It was the crow, and yes, he talks to, and he asked her what she was doing all the way out here. Not surprised a crow was saying hi, she relates the entire story, and the crow says, Kay? I've seen him. Well, I've seen a human male. Is that what you're asking here? And then the crow launches into a long speech about how he doesn't really speak human languages all that well. And he has this really great fiance who actually saw Kay, or the human boy if that's what she means. She saw a lot of Kays, or human boys, and then he finally gets to the relevant part. Okay, so as an aside, the story is kind of getting into the weeds here, especially when talking about crow to human language translation. Basically, there's a super smart princess who decides that she'd like to get married. She doesn't want to get married to just anyone, but she wants her intellectual equal. She issues a challenge for all the young men in the realm to come and have a conversation. The one who can hold his own will be her husband. The young men come, but they are so intimidated by the princess that they can hardly say a word. Enter a young man with shabby clothes and a pack, or sled, slung over his back. He's wearing nice boots and goes up and talks to the princess. And she likes him. Gerda nods when hearing the story. It must be Kay, because he's really smart and he knows his fractions, which that's just adorable. The young poor boy married the princess, and he's currently in the palace with her. The crow gets his fiance, who approves of Gerda, and takes her to the palace up a back hallway. The crows lead her in, and she enters the prince and princess's bedroom, where they're sleeping, yelling for Kay. You should not be surprised to learn that it was not Kay. Remember, the crows are very bad at descriptions, given that they really only speak crow. Instead of being incredibly angry about an intruder in their chamber, the prince and princess get up and let Gerda have their bed. She sleeps there and stays in the castle for a few days. The three get along well, and they want to help her find Kay, if he's still alive. They give her a carriage, horses, drivers, servants, and everything, and Gerda rides off, waving goodbye to the prince and princess and goodbye to the crows, who have apparently earned a position in the royal kitchens for bringing Gerda there. And the crows are happy to have a job and pension in their old age. And, yeah, I'll leave you to ponder why that matters. Gerda rides down the road in the carriage, happy and comfortable. She doesn't know where to go next. But for the first time since she left the capital by accident, she finally feels like she's able to go about the search for Kay the right way. Then, she saw the blood. An arrow went through the driver and stuck into the wall of the carriage. Blood poured in the hole, and that's when she heard the screams all around. She could hear more arrows thudding into the driver, and ducked and cowered in a dark corner of the carriage. People climbed aboard, 
She didn't dare look out because she could hear the screams, weeping and pleading of the servants that had left the castle with her before the sounds of daggers and silence. There was a pause where Gerda was hopeful that they had left, but then the door exploded off its hinges as someone kicked it in. It was a big, ugly man, and he dragged her out by her dress and threw her on the ground, pointing a pistol at her. An old woman stooped over her, eyes hungry and mouth-watering, with a long knife in hand, and, of course, she has a beard. Gerda looked around, and tall, ugly men surrounded her, and they were dragging the bodies from the carriage and going through the pockets of the dead men for any valuables. They were bandits. Gerda was so panicked that she only thought she heard the old woman say something about eating her, Before something weird happened, Gerda heard a growling, and then the old woman shrieked and spun around. A girl the size of Gerda was on her back, chewing at her ear, keeping her from killing and eating Gerda. The other bandits just laughed. It was the daughter of the old woman, who wants Gerda alive and as a playmate. The crone got tired of fighting her daughter, and the next thing Gerda knew, she was back in the carriage as a captive, now being driven back to the bandit hideout. She looked across at the girl, who never put her knife away. And though she had saved Gerda's life, Gerda still looked at her with fear. The girl asked who she was and all that, and Gerda was quiet. The girl said, Don't worry. The people outside won't kill you if you make me angry. I'll kill you. With this knife. Now tell me who you are. Gerda told her all about Kay and her journey so far. The girl shrugged it off. When they got to the hideout, it was past nightfall, and the girl showed Gerda to her room. On the way, the robber girl saw her pet, a reindeer they had captured. It was tied up, and she dragged it down by its horns. This delightful little sociopath enjoyed tickling the reindeer's neck with her knife every night, which, she remarked with a laugh, made him very terrified. After that, they got to her room where she had a couple of pigeons in a cage. She had a fantastic big bed and told Gerda to get in. Gerda said, Uh... Aren't you going to, you know, put the knife away before bed? And the girl said that she always slept with a knife. You never know what could happen. Now get in bed. In bed, the robber girl rested her knife on her lap and, sitting up, put her arm around Gerda and asked her to hear the story of Kay again. Halfway through, she was asleep, but her arm was around Gerda in the bandit-infested hideout, and she had her knife in the other hand. Gerda did not sleep. The girl was unstable, and Gerda didn't know whether the robber girl would kill her on a whim when she awoke, or make her keep up this ridiculous and terrifying charade. The door was cracked, and Gerda could see the old woman and the murderous robbers getting very, very drunk around the fire. This was not a good situation. Okay, so for a little meta-commentary, this is where Hans Christian Andersen starts to speed things up a bit, so a few uncharacteristic things are going to happen here in quick succession. And, of course, more things talk. The pigeons on the side of the bed talk and say, Hey, we heard your story and we've actually seen Kay. They say, Yeah, we saw him with his sled nearly a year ago at this point, riding through the forest with the Snow Queen. The Snow Queen blew on the forest and all their pigeon friends died from the cold. But yeah, Kay was just riding along with her in a big white sleigh. To Gerda, it sounded like the sleigh Kay had hitched to on his way out of the capital. Gerda was so excited and she told them to tell her more. But they shook their heads when they saw the robber girl stirring. And the little girl said in her sleep that if Gerda didn't quiet down, she would run her through with a knife. The pigeons refused to talk after that. She knew he wasn't dead. And now she just needed to get the rest of the story. Okay, so here's where we're going to backtrack, and I'll tell you what happened to Kay, who, surprise, did not drown in the river. 
Outside of the city, the snowstorm kicked up and seemed to follow them, and the white sleigh took a turn and went by the river. And Kay's little sled jumped over a snowbank, and to anyone near the capital, it looked like he would have gone right into the river. He held on, though, and eventually he was able to sit. They were still going fast, and he wasn't sure how close they were to the river, or woods or anything in this blinding snowstorm. It was too risky to jump, so he stayed on the sled. After an hour, he lost feeling in his hands, and after three, he couldn't feel his feet. Another passed, and all he could do was cling and shiver as they traveled dangerously fast through the snowstorm. Then, he felt the sled beginning to slow, and the snowstorm let up a bit. Soon it was beautifully serene, and night in the forest, and he looked up to see a figure standing there, wrapped in furs. A wind blew, and the furs flew away like snow to reveal a woman in white standing there. He would have tried to run or scream, but all he could do was shiver. She held out a fur to him, and his eyes lit up as he struggled to his feet. Evil, kidnapping witch or not, he needed to get warm. He sat next to her in the sled, and still couldn't get warm. She put her arm around him, and kissed him on the forehead. A sharp chill ran down his head, neck, and chest until it hit his heart, and he felt so cold. For a moment, he felt like he was dying. Then, he didn't feel the cold anymore. He took the fur cloak off. He relaxed. He didn't feel warm, but he didn't feel cold. With the kiss from the Snow Queen, he didn't feel anything, except extreme, unwavering devotion to the woman. He desperately wanted her approval, and to serve her as long as he lived. She gave him another kiss, and again he felt the cold snake into his heart, but it wasn't so bad this time. With this kiss he forgot Gerda, his grandmother, home, everything but the Snow Queen. She said she couldn't kiss him again, or he'd die. She had servants made of snow get his sled and bring it aboard, and the story says that these things are the size and shape of snow chickens. Kay tried to impress the Snow Queen with everything he knew, and by day he slipped at her feet in the sled. They traveled through forests, open rivers, and icy lakes, and finally across tundra toward the lonely, frozen fortress of the Snow Queen. Back with Gerda, in the morning, she woke up to the robber girl and told her everything, and the robber girl became uncharacteristically serious and willing to help. They listened to the rest of the story from the pigeons and learned that the Snow Queen lived at the North Pole in a huge fortress. The reindeer chimed in that he knew where it was. It was his homeland. The robber girl said, despite this not fitting with her characterization up to this point, that she would help Gerda escape on the reindeer she loved to torture. The robbers were gone to the day, and I'll let you guess what they were up to, so it was just the old woman and the girl. The old woman liked to drink from a big bottle of liquor at lunch, and liked to sleep it off afterwards. And I'm not joking at all, so that would give Gerda time to escape. The mom burst in the door, and the girl leapt out of bed, pulling the old woman's beard and calling her Nanny Goat. The mom hit the girl repeatedly on the nose. The writer makes a point to tell us that they did this because they loved each other. Yep, she raises her daughter surrounded by violent murderers. She gives her a knife to torture animals. She slaps her on the face. Then she drinks so much at lunch that she needs to lie down. But it's okay because it's all out of love. When the pair heard the snoring of the mother, they went to work. And the little girl stole some winter wear from the robbers. And Gerda climbed atop the reindeer. The girl gave her some food and says farewell. 
Gerda looks back across the snow and sees the girl watching her leave, still holding the knife. Gerda rides the reindeer across the forests, tundra, frozen lakes, and all that, and she runs out of food. She comes to the hut of one woman, who tells her to go see another Finnish fortune teller, and after 100 more freezing miles on the back of a reindeer, Gerda comes to that woman. The woman is small and dirty and for some reason barely clothed, but nice. She confirms that Kay is with the Snow Queen and quietly to the reindeer tells him everything. The Finnish woman goes infrequently to the Snow Queen's fortress and she's seen Kay. The thing is, he's completely happy there and she informs the reindeer that Kay has the demon glass lodged in his heart. The reindeer doesn't ask the question, what is demon glass, but instead asks if she, with her magic, can give Gerda the strength of 12 men. The witch said that Gerda already has all she needs. She's made it through several dangers to northern Finland in the winter. Her greatest power comes from her innocence and purity of heart. No power the Finnish woman can give her can top that. I personally would say, so is that a no on the strength of 12 men? Or maybe I can have that in addition? It, it, never mind, never mind. The Finnish woman tells both of them of the fortress two miles away and where to find the door. And Gerda once again gets on the reindeer's back. They take off, and Gerda realizes that she's missing her very necessary coat, gloves, and boots, which how'd she even get outside without realizing that? But the reindeer, like a true friend, refuses to go back. They approach the looming ice palace, and it's massive, with some rooms, and yes, rooms, being a mile long. And the reindeer drops her off, tears streaming down his reindeer face, and leaves. Gerda looks with uncertainty towards an open gate, shivering because she's woefully underdressed, and she's very surprised to see something forming in front of her. The Finnish woman very much omitted the existence of large, powerful, and threatening snow guardians, taking the form of giant serpents and large porcupine bears. Soon, Gerda was surrounded. She didn't know what else to do, so she said the Lord's Prayer. She saw little bits of light floating down to earth all around her, as the giant snow beast watched, puzzled. The little bits of light grew and grew until they became full-grown, fully armored angels with spears and shields. A whole legion of angels stood before her and destroyed all the snow beast in what I can imagine was a really cool battle. They rub her feet and hands to warm her up and leave her amidst piles of snow with a clear path into the Snow Queen's fortress. So, I don't know how else to say this, other than that the story does not have a satisfying ending. I want to make sure your hopes are rock bottom right now, and hopefully I won't let them down further. Okay, so while Kay has been in captivity, he's been given what Hans Christian Andersen has called sort of a Chinese puzzle game, with little tablets of ice. It's a logic game, and he can spell words with them, and when he spells a certain word, the Snow Queen told him he will be his own master. She will give him the whole world, and a new pair of skates. This is months before Gerda gets there, and then the Snow Queen leaves. She just leaves, and she doesn't come back for the duration of the story. That's right, the big villain and the person the story is named after is not present at all for the climax, and we don't see her again. So Kay works feverishly on the puzzle, and because the Snow Queen kissed him and froze his heart, he doesn't get cold, but he's still black and blue. He just doesn't feel it, and he doesn't die. As it turns out, the giant snow monsters, though a good defense if one doesn't have a legion of angels, was the only defense, and Gerda walks right into the courtyard. She sees Kay, and tears began streaming down her face. He was alive, 
She knew it the whole time. She ran up to him and hugged him and told him she was rescuing him. They could go home now. But he doesn't respond to her. He just keeps working on his little logic game, trying to figure out the word. She shakes him, and she doesn't realize that the glass in his heart has made him want to stay. But he doesn't so much as look at her. She falls over him and weeps. She has come so far, and she didn't even know that she had lost Kay long ago, even before the sleigh ride. She lost him the day the demon glass pierced his heart. She wept over him, and something happened. The hot tears fell into his chest and penetrated into his heart because, sure, and they washed over it, thawing it and washing out the demon glass that had become lodged there. He looked at her, confused, and she said, Roses bloom and cease to be, but we shall the Christ child see. And he burst into tears, and that washed the demon glass from his eye. Gerda kissed his hands and head and eyes, and he warmed up like a normal human. He looked at Gerda and all around him and said, Where am I? Okay, so Anderson didn't exactly stick the landing with the climax of the story, but it gets more strange in Deus Ex Machina E now. They dance, and all the snowflakes dance with them. When everything comes to rest, they find the ice puzzle pieces, kicked up in the wind, have settled to spell eternity, which is the word that Kay needed. Kay is free. They leave and see the reindeer waiting by the gate with another young reindeer whose udders are full. They drink from the reindeer's udders and kiss her on the mouth. They ride the reindeer back to the Finnish woman and then to the other one and both outfit the kids with things. They reach the green forests and the reindeers leave them in tears. Walking, they hear someone in the woods and see a beautiful horse. One that Gerda recognizes is one that was stolen from her carriage she rode on. It was the little robber girl, with a red cap, her knife, of course, and a pistol at her belt. She had gotten tired of staying at home, so she's exploring the world and probably robbing people. She said that the prince and princess are in a foreign land, and the crow is dead, though he did get to marry his fiancée, who is now his widow and very mournful. The robber girl says that she will visit them if she ever comes by the capital, and they say their goodbyes. They skipped meeting the witch, for obvious reasons, and after many more days found themselves walking up to the capital. They find everything familiar, yet different, and realize that it's not their city that's changed, but them. They've grown up, and I don't mean that they went through trials, learned a lot about themselves and the world, and are richer for the experience. No, they literally grew up. They're adults now. I don't know how or why or what purpose this serves, and I can't even begin to explain it. The story ends with Gerda and Kay in each other's arms. Their grandmother is reading to them from the Bible in warm, beautiful summer. The story today started out as a poem about a young girl in love with the miller boy who went to the mill one day to find that the wheel had stopped. He had been taken by the Snow Queen. I did find some sort of explanation about why the demon glass in his eye correlated with the love of the perfection in the snowflake. It wasn't that the snowflake was bad per se, but that it represented sort of an obsession with reason and earthly perfection. The temptation the Snow Queen offered was not anything untoward, but rather a temptation towards perfect knowledge. In parts I didn't include, she thinks that he doesn't know enough, and her realm is perfectly built from those perfect snowflakes. She challenged Kay to a logic puzzle for his freedom, and apparently in her kingdom you can set your watch by the northern lights. In this way, 
one reading of the fairy tale is that it's the redemption of an inhibited, lonely intellectual by the love of a woman. It's one interpretation, and it's interesting and kind of reflects the life of Hans Christian Andersen. He had an odd, sad, and complicated love life that I won't really go into. I can only say that he never really experienced redemption from the several anxieties that plagued him in the romantic sphere, and many of his loves went unrequited. In fact, when he died, unmarried of liver cancer at the age of 70, a long letter from his youth, from a girl he had loved, was found in a pouch on his chest. The movie Frozen is based off the story, but as you can probably see, only in the broadest of strokes, in that it contains a snow queen and a quest for redemption. I like to think of this, the original story, as an alternate reality where Elsa doesn't experience love, acceptance, and redemption in the end, and instead uses her powers to rule a frozen kingdom and steal people from their homes to slake her deep loneliness. And also, we don't really get any explanation as to who the Snow Queen is, what her motivations are, or any sort of origin story or anything like that in Hans Christian Andersen's version. The ending is a little unsatisfying, but I really like that. After the treatment the Little Mermaid got, where she basically spends the whole story hoping the prince notices her before dying for him, Hans Christian Andersen actually let a female character go on kind of an epic quest, save the male character, and live. Next week is an Irish legend, and we'll start in on the story of Cúlin. If you like the characters in epic scale, the Viking, Greek, or Arthurian legends, these are awesome stories from Ireland in the same sort of style. I want to say thanks to Half Dan, Ace Carey, Home Likes Bacon, John DeSuckett, Sir Porkchop, Slinky Buzz, Millie Hilton, Demi1291, Bob2054, Tobias Uzo, A Neutral, and Lucio for the feedback and reviews on iTunes. If you're looking to help out the podcast, iTunes is a great place to leave a review. You can find it at itunes.mythpodcast.com. Also, there's a membership thing on the site. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so for $5 a month, less than one quarter of the price of Fox earmuffs. Now, I'm not saying these earmuffs are going to come to life and eat your liver, but why even take that chance? You know it won't come to life and eat your liver? The membership on the site. There are extra episodes, a monthly fairy tale Friday, and more. So if you're interested, check out support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the Vodnoi from Russian folklore. It's a dangerous water creature, and it lives in freshwater lakes and rivers. The appearances vary maybe even more wildly than the bunyip, because it can be seen as an old man with a blue face white beard and green hair, an old man covered in scales with fur or huge paws, glowing red eyes and horns, a large fish, or, my personal favorite, a floating moss-covered log with wings. There are a few different conceptions of the creature, from Russian to Czech, Slovak, and others, but he either lives in a magnificent underwater palace or the sludge at the bottom of the river. The fish are his servants, and he will often grab unsuspecting humans who are walking along and drag them down to his realm to serve him. Unfortunately, we can't breathe underwater, so he pretty much always just ends up drowning the person. Local accidental drownings are said to be the work of this creature. There are a few ways to keep from falling victim to this creature. The first is to just keep your wits about you, and don't be careless by the river. He does accept sacrifices, and millers will give him a cockerel, a male chicken less than one year old, if you're wondering, to satiate his need to kill. Another sacrifice for him? Drunk people. A drunken stranger passing a mill has also served as a sacrifice to appease this creature. 
I'm assuming and hoping that these were accidental drownings of drunk people that stumbled into the river. But regardless, if your buddy the Miller is buying drinks, maybe don't listen to him when he says you should go by the river on your way home. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Links to the other music I used are in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.